This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Sunday, March 27th, 2022. I'm Jared Halpern. President Biden, Supreme Court nominee, meets the Senate. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. One state's Republican Senate primary is getting a lot of attention for all the wrong reasons. And now candidates are calling for one of their race rivals to drop out as the party waits to see if former President Trump weighs in. But these are folks that are trying to appeal to Trump. They have Trump former Trump advisors on their payroll try to get that endorsement, and they have pandered to the to the most conservative elements within the Republican Party. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. It would appear the Supreme Court will have its 116th justice in a few months. Appeals Court Judge Ketanji Brown-Jackson faced the Senate's Judiciary Committee this past week in two lengthy days of questions from that panel, laying out her judicial approach. I decide cases from a neutral posture. I evaluate the, the facts, and I interpret and apply the law to the facts of the case before me, without fear or favor, consistent with my judicial oath. West Virginia Democrat Joe Manchin announced Friday morning his intent to support Jackson. That would appear to clear the way for a final confirmation next month with or without Republican votes in the 50-50 divided Senate. Like nominees before her, Jackson faced a wide array of questions about hypothetical issues and abortion and gun rights, land use regulations, unenumerated rights, and expanding the court's membership. It is a policy question for Congress, and I am particularly mindful of, of not speaking to policy issues because I am so committed to staying in my lane of the system. Jackson frequently noted her attempts to stay in her lane and respect the limits of a judge's power. Republicans on the committee, however, questioned decisions within her power. They spent a lot of time on several child pornography cases. As a federal district court judge, Jackson's sentences were below guidelines and prosecutors' recommendations. Jackson said her sentences took a lot of factors into account and were in line with most other sentences being handed down by fellow judges. Shannon Bream is the chief legal affairs correspondent for Fox News, the anchor of Fox News at Night and a former attorney. 
I asked her about the questions asked of Jackson, Jackson's answers, and what it tells us about how she may fit in on the court. I think that um, she was well prepared for all of those things, knowing they were coming and um, she kept it together, kept her cool. And that's what you want for any nominee that you put forward. Um, it's a, to be it's able a to temperament test know. more than anything, isn't it? Exactly. And and I do think that's a big part of choosing a nominee and thinking about how they'll work on the court as well. You have somebody super combative. They're not going to win people over to vote with them. Um, but if they are people who are viewed as um, those who can have the temperament to be persuasive and to be, you know, also a listener and somebody who can build relationships, um, I think that's what you want in a nominee to the highest court in the land. So you're not only hoping as a president that you have their vote where it matters to you on big issues, but that they'll also build relationships relationships and able to be persuasive on the court. Let's talk about some of those issues that uh, are concerns, I guess, that, that Republicans brought up. And there was a lot over the two days about her sentences in well, it was about 10 cases, right? These child pornography mm-hmm. cases where the judge as uh, a trial judge, a, a district court federal judge, um, handed down sentences that were below federal guidelines and were below prosecutors recommendations i guess first of all is that unusual for a judge to to demand a sentence or or deliver a sentence that is below a a prosecutor's request isn't a prosecutor always going to ask for the 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 most severe punishment yeah i mean you get to a good point i think judges do that all the time i mean they're looking at numerous factors and there are sentencing guidelines but there are also you know considering family issues and other personal factors and victims requests and prosecutors requests i mean there are so many things that you mix into that stew of making a decision so yeah i mean it's not unusual that judges go outside of those guidelines but i do think republicans had some you know good questions about some mm-hmm. of the specific cases and why she made the decisions in those cases and, and that's sort of I mean, that, that's the other point of this, right, because re- Democrats on the committee were, were critical of this line of questioning. Um, but this is a judge's record. Right. I mean, I understand that the Supreme Court doesn't sentence people. Um, but is this information? Is this a history, a part of her her background that, that can help understand what kind of justice she mm-hmm. might be? Yeah, I think it's really helpful to have people like her and like Justice Sotomayor who have been, you know, part of the system as prosecutors or defenders. So they know it a little bit better than some of the other justices would. Um, they, and they do make decisions about sentencing in after the fact, you know, in the appellate um, oh, sure. scenario. And you think about the fact that, you know, Jokar Sarnayev, the Boston bomber, I mean, his sentence just went up. His death penalty sentence just went up to the Supreme Court. So they're going to be reviewing other people's sentencing decisions. And so I think anything you've done as a judge from the bench is fair game when you were nominated to the next level. So of course they're going to dig into that. And I think it was right that they asked her probing questions about some of these really disturbing cases, because it also gives her a chance to explain what her thinking was in those cases and why she did what she did. But I think it's relevant. I mean, whatever you've done from the bench will speak to what kind of jurist you are or that you've evolved into over time. And I think justices often continue to evolve once they get onto the Supreme Court bench. We've seen that um, very plainly in a number of cases. So mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a fair question to ask uh, about these sort of road markers about the decisions that you've made in your position as a judge. Let's talk also about the other issue that seems to be, you know, there's always sort of these moments people talk about that this was the moment. I don't know what it was 
what we're going to be talking about in, in in this one. I know, you know, obviously with Kavanaugh, it's I like beer, right? I don't think there was an I like beer moment necessarily, <laughs> right? But there was a lot made about um, her, about uh, Judge Jackson's inability or refusal to answer uh, that question about what is a woman. Let me ask you, first of all, sort of what that line of questioning w- was sort of after um, and uh, I guess we'll sort of move on from there about what that might mean from a Supreme Court perspective. Yeah, I think I, I think some of the follow up that you saw from Senator Cruz the following mm-hmm. day kind of got to what they were getting to, because, listen, cases about um, female athletes, female sports, trans women in sports. I think those questions are they're already being litigated in the lower. Right. Courts. That was what I was going to get to. Right. Yeah. So, so I, I think that that's I'm, what they're getting at, that we're she would view that as knowing that she's probably going to get some legal disputes in front mm-hmm. of her that will involve those questions. So does that mean that giving that answer, if she's asked, what is a woman? And she, I think said, I mean, she, answered, she was asked it a couple of times, but at one point she said, I'm not a biologist, right? Mm-hmm. It, does mm-hmm. she give that answer knowing that I can't really dive into this because this is something that I might have to take up as a judge? Mm-hmm. I mean, I is this sort exactly of a new sort thinking. of where do you, st- like, how do you define where life begins is this sort of like a right. the new sort of abortion uh, bright line that the sort of gun rights bright line that we've seen in previous confirmations. I wouldn't be surprised because those cases are bubbling up. They're coming. They're mm-hmm. going to land at the highest court. And I think it uh, was probably part of her preparation um, and certainly wise of her to say, I'm not going to wade into that minefield. But of course, to the average American who's not thinking about these, the nitpicking mm-hmm. minutia of these legal fights, that seems odd to them that that you would ask someone right. to define a woman and she wouldn't want to do it or, or you know, make the choice to refrain from that. So I think to the average American who sees that it reads as very strange. But if you're looking at it from a legal and judicial perspective, um, she's probably smart to dodge the question in that. It will be used one way or another if she gives an answer because those cases will get to her. What are those cases? Are those questions about transgender athletics who can compete and some of the accommodations that states are looking at as it relates to the transgender issues? I mean, what what does that case look like uh, that, that might ultimately reach the Supreme Court? You know, there were a couple early on that involved, if you remember, some uh, female track athletes, high school track athletes, um, meaning biologically born female track Mm -hmm. athletes um, who were in high school and were competing against, um, you know, a trans athlete. And that um, that did spark some legal um, action. I think that there will probably be NCAA legal action as well. Mm. Um, It's really difficult because the families and the athletes of those who were born biologically female feel very um, nervous. I would think most of them about trying to wade into this, this huge cultural conversation, not wanting to be seen as insensitive, Mm -hmm. but also, you know, some of them are speaking out saying, listen, this format, this idea of having female sports was meant to give us a specific place to compete and to have opportunity. And, um, you know, I, I do think we're going to see more legal challenges on that front. And I can't imagine that it doesn't get litigated to that level at some point. Let's fast forward, assuming that the numbers are what we believe the numbers are and in, in that she gets confirmed either with only Democrat votes or a couple of Republican votes. We, we expect a narrow confirmation. I think that's sort of the, the status quo for the time being with Supreme mm-hmm. Court nominees. Um, how do you see Judge Jackson fitting in with the current Supreme Court? I guess, first of all, it would be you know, the first time that we've had four women on the court, which is as close mm-hmm. to, to gender parity as you can get on a, a nine member uh, institution. 
Yeah. I, it's interesting to me um, to watch these personalities because they're all such distinct personalities. Right. You know, you cover the court. Well, too. And, and they're all like so accomplished. Right. right. I mean, they've been like at the top of their field. Like since forever, uh, she was like a a, a, a forensics Debate champion in champion high school. Right? I mean, like, in high so. school, she went to Harvard and Harvard <laughs> Law, graduated with honors from both. Like, and, and you she's walk just into like an, the room, and you're kind of like right, av- and, you walk in, and now you're kind of like average, right? Like everybody else has. Now I'm, with, now I'm with other people I can relate to. No, I mean I think I think it's um it's certainly you're walking into the best and brightest legal minds uh, of the country, and you're going to disagree about things, but hopefully you're worthy opponents, your friends, you can discuss and debate these things that are incredibly important to the country, but you know, they're very collegial there. And I think she'll be welcomed with open arms. Um, I remember hearing the late Justice Ginsburg talk about um, in, in the conversation with Justice Kavanaugh and saying that, you know, after that grueling, um, you know, vetting process that he yeah. went through and people are still on both sides of that, very um, frustrated and angry about how that whole thing went, um, that, you know, she welcomed him in as a colleague, like he's here, he's made it through the process, we've got work to do. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think that they have um, really unique friendships, because who else can can relate to what the nine of them do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, pre-COVID, they had lunch together almost every day. I think they're getting back wow. to some of that a little bit, nice. but um, I think they very much have each other's backs. They're going to have heated disagreements, but I think they all care about the institution of the court. And what I've repeatedly heard about her from people who say, um, I'm not going to vote for her, but I really liked meeting with her and she's very winning. She's very charming, very intelligent. And um, they think that from that perspective, she will have a great temperament for making friendships and relationships that may help to sway votes and to change minds. And and that's something that's important to getting those votes together on the court. From what we know about her and, and certainly being nominated by by a Democrat president, we expect her to, to be pretty centered in, in that progressive wing, the, the, the liberal wing of the court? I do. I, I don't think there's any mistaking about that, although it was very interesting to hear her not want to really commit to a judicial philosophy like she didn't right. want to label it this week. But when she talks about things like, well, I go back to the original text and then from there, I look at what the original writers of that text meant at the time mm-hmm. they wrote it. I mean, that sounds very much like the original is kind of, you I was know, gonna ask you about that. is that, dare I say, like Scalian? Right. And so that's not what the left, I think, would expect to hear from a Democratic nominee, um, whether it won over some, you know, Republican or conservative votes on the committee or on the on the floor for her. I don't know. Um, But I think most average Americans, if you ask them, what do you want a judge to do? Like, okay, read the law and make a decision. And so much of what she said sounded very much like a Thomas or Scalia. Do I think she's going to vote on the court like a Thomas or Scalia? I do not. but I don't know. I mean, it was very interesting to hear that the way that she categorized it and her you idea. Bring up a good point that I think is worth reminding folks too that the, the majority of cases that the Supreme Court decides are not like five, four, six, three cases. Right. Right. And and people think that because, of course, those are the really those are the ones you and I talk about. Get, right. Those are the <laughs> ones that get all the headlines. And I suspect, you know, when we get the abortion case that we're waiting on, it will be sure. that kind of thing. There will be splits and mm-hmm. five, four here, six, three there. Um, but, yeah, there's a great I mean, uh, yesterday we got. Oh, no, it was today. I can't even my days are bleeding together because we're <laughs> we so were talking on Thursday evening. We at got, the end we of a were very long Thursday. week for Shane. <laughs> so along with everything else this week, we did get two Supreme Court opinions this morning. And I think they were nine oh and eight one. If there I remember, go. although I am a bit of a zombie at this point, but it, <laughs> it reminds people like we need to remind them they do agree on a lot of stuff yeah. um, in, in a more cohesive way. It's the really heated five fours that you're going to hear about.
you know, the the, the other point that, that I think is interesting about uh, when somebody new comes onto the court is, um, like, what's that process? And, and it, you don't really get, like, a, uh, a curve to, like, sort of, probationary you know, period around, right? like I mean, no you're jumping in well the good thing for her no, is i would say with her there. she'll likely be confirmed in april and she has a few months because justice Breyer's not retiring until the term ends right in, in june or right July. so right and the thing is she's clerked there so she knows how sure. it works i think that's got to be the best preparation for just the amount the volume of material that you've got to do there and um you know because she's been a judge for years and years she's got clerks that she can pull from like who wouldn't as a former clerk or current clerk of hers say i'll go with you to the supreme court like she's going to have a great group of people to who've clerked with her and worked with her before so she's not starting totally from scratch and she will get to get in in the summer and, and dive into the documents um it's harder for justices i think who either haven't been a judge and or jumping it in the middle of a term when they're yeah. already hearing cases and there are hundreds of briefs piled up everywhere and you don't have clerks yet. I mean, all of those things are really difficult. So hopefully for her, um, it'll be a smooth transition, um, both because she spent time there as a clerk and she's been a judge for almost a decade. She uh, the, do. You know, when you serve in the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals, which is sometimes called the second highest court in the land, um, mm-hmm. do you have much interaction with the Supreme Court? And they're in different buildings. It's. You know, you know, I, I think you're is she going to know these, in, these these justices. Yeah, I think being in D.C., they run in some of the same circles for <laughs> sure. I mean, you know, it's a small I, this, town. These, <laughs> it's a small town in the fact that like you're kind of the biggest deal in town uh, as being these judges uh, from the judicial and legal world perspective. I mean, they definitely cross paths and know each other. Um, their clerks often go from one of the courts to the other. So, you know, they've got a lot of things in common, a lot of relationships and connections in common. And, you know, when you're sitting on the DC circuit, you also have um, your decisions going up to the Supreme Court and they're either smacking them down or they're approving them. So you have that professional, um, sometimes contentious relationship too. But uh, my sense is that she will feel very comfortable and fit in pretty quickly. So she walks in and says, I got a beef with you. You knocked down my decision. <laughs> exactly. I got to talk to you about that. <laughs> and listen, you know, she hasn't had she hasn't been on that appellate court level long enough. I think she's had two opinions that she signed on okay. to. So they haven't had a lot of material to um, dissect <laughs> from her just yet. So maybe not any beef. OK, I did. Yeah, wanna- but, you know, I was going to say you and you kind of the one of the dorky things is that you and I know that when there's a new justice, they're the junior justice and there are specific things they get stuck doing. And one oh, of I've them heard is being stories. on the cafeteria. Yeah, yeah. the cafe, cafeteria committee, they get stuck on that. Well, and so um, there's I was going to ask to feel the complaints and they have to come up with anything new they want to propose down there. So it's kind of goofy, but it's it's actually kind of funny to see how some of them handle it. All right. Well, listen, Shannon, it's been a long week for you. I appreciate you taking the time. I love talking about the, these issues with you. And um, we'll continue to, to check in, obviously, as we get opinions here, as we get towards the latter part of the term and obviously follow along here uh, as the Senate now takes up the uh, confirmation votes in the next few weeks here for uh, Judge Katanji uh, Brown Jackson. Always a pleasure to cover the court along with you, Jared. <laughs> Thanks, Shannon. Plenty of other states are holding primaries ahead of fall midterms well before Missouri is, but Missouri's getting a lot of press as some Republican Senate candidates demand that one of their rivals drop out of the race. Eric Greitens resigned as Missouri's Republican governor in 2018, but he's now running for Senate. 
Greitens ex-wife recently filed court paperwork saying he had been abusive. He'd resigned as governor after it was revealed he had an affair, and the woman with whom he had an affair said Greitens attempted to blackmail her. As for the abuse claims by his ex-wife, Greitens says they are false. Still, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, who is also running for the Senate seat, posted a video of herself on social media to respond. Real men never abuse women and children. Period. End of story. It's time for Eric to get out of the Senate race and to get professional help. Attorney General Eric Schmidt, who's also running in the GOP Senate primary, has called for Greitens to drop out. Some polling, though, had shown Greitens ahead, at least before the abuse allegations were revealed. A Trafalgar Group poll showed Greitens with 30 percent support in late February, seven points ahead of Schmidt, though nearly 15 percent were undecided. A vulnerable Republican, though, could leave the door open to a Democratic candidate. Another Trafalgar Group poll had Marine veteran Lucas Kuntz within a point of Greitens and State Senator Scott Sifton even with him. The only reason why Republicans are worried about his candidacy is that there's so many other Republicans in the field that are splitting the more traditional Republican vote. Josh Krausauer is Fox News Radio's political analyst and National Journal politics editor. And because Greitens, even though he's a disgraced former governor who's now being credibly accused from, by his ex-wife of demonstrating, quote-unquote, unstable and coercive behavior, including abuse of his three-year-old child, uh, there there still is a concern that he could win a, a, a primary because of name ID, and all it takes is about 25, 30 percent of the Republican vote. There's also a concern, Jessica, that Trump could win this race. He's expressed some interest in the past in endorsing Eric Reitens. Now, I, I don't see that being that likely at this point in time, but it just goes to show that even with all this baggage, all these problems, Greitens still remains a factor in this primary. Why, Josh, is he a factor? I was reading a quote that, from some political analyst in Missouri that, that regardless of whatever he's accused of, he Greitens would still get like 25 to 30 percent of the Republican vote. What is it about him? What is it about his previous messaging that really resonates with um, some of those Missouri voters? Yeah, you know, I don't, I don't think it's as much of his messaging as it is his profile in the state. A lot of these other Republicans who are running against him just are not very prominent politicians. Uh, you have a congresswoman, Vicki Hartzler. You've got a state attorney general. You've got another uh, local congressman also in the race. You know, the other other reason why Greitens has gotten a lot of attention is he's the only Republican in the field who is attacking Mitch McConnell. He's running against the Republican establishment. He is just sticking his middle finger up and saying, don't believe anything you read about in the media. And there is sort of this contrarian anti-establishment, I don't trust anything I read point of view within the Republican Party. Now, when when it's Josh Hawley, very well-respected in Missouri conservative senator saying it, I think it's a little bit different. But combined with his profile as a former governor and this sort of nihilistic faction within the Republican Party that doesn't trust anything they hear, you know, you can see how Greitens is still hanging around. I I think these latest details in his ex-wife's court records and and her affidavit are going to be the final straw. I think these are going to do – it's going to cause some serious damage. But look, you can't can't take it for granted, and Republicans realize that. Some of the bigger rivals, I guess, Attorney General Eric Schmidt, Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler, like you said, of Missouri's 4th District have called for Greitens to drop out. Schmidt was especially harsh, saying allegations of abuse made by his wife mean Greitens should be in prison, not on the ballot. Does that kind of pressure – amount to anything like will does it matter to to Greitens Greitens 
is not going to listen to anyone. He didn't want to resign as governor until his party essentially forced the issue. And uh, he didn't have support even within his own party uh, at the end of his governorship. Uh, look, these are these are his opponents. He's he's not going to listen to what they have to say. His, his base of support isn't dependent on, on the attorney general or a congressman or Mitch McConnell or anyone else. Uh, so he's going to I have a hard time seeing how he drops out. He's been in this race despite hit the scandal that enveloped his governorships so he got in the race despite all the baggage he had he knew this was going to be coming out and he i don't think he's gonna drop out just because of of, of all the the bad headlines um I want to ask you about another pressure point, because last month Politico reported on some private third-party polling, and this was before Greitens' wife's court filings, and it found that if he were up against the Democrat, Lucas Kuntz, a military veteran, that he only had a very narrow lead. It was like four points. What does that information mean? Do, do other Republicans say, look, you know, this our party could lose here, legitimately lose, oh, look, so please get out? Republicans – no, they could lose the Senate race, even in a red state like Missouri, if you have someone as problematic as Eric Greitens as your nominee. Now, it would be a race. Missouri has gotten to be a very, very conservative, very pro-Trump state. Uh, but but Greitens is, is viewed negatively, not just by moderate Republicans. You have Republicans all across the state that have spoken out against him, despite their ideological differences. So he would be vulnerable, and Democrats would have an outside chance to, to win a Senate race that they otherwise would have no business competing in if Greitens was on the ballot. And by the way, it happened, Jessica, before in, in 2012, Todd Akin, whose baggage was a lot less serious than, than um, yeah. Greitens's is. He's made some you know extreme comments on abortion, uh, but that allowed him to lose support with swing voters, and he lost to Claire McCaskill. So Democrats can win in Missouri when Republicans nominate someone out of the mainstream, and Eric Greitens has about as much baggage as you can possibly imagine for a race like this. Josh, how Trumpy is this race? How Trumpy has it been? You know, because we know Greitens has, of course, linked himself to to Trump. Um, but another candidate uh, running, attorney Mark McCloskey, he, he spoke to Trump back in 2020 when McCloskey and his wife made headlines by holding guns outside of their home during uh, a protest that included Black Lives Matter. Are other candidates that we know of, like Hartzler and Schmidt, are they also efforting an endorsement by Trump? They would like it. I, I don't think... Trump is going to engage in this primary because it's very wide open and, and the polls show that the, the, the most damaging candidate, the most problematic candidate is, is right now leading in the latest round of polling. But look, this is a, a Trumpy field. Missouri is a Trumpy state. It's, it's the home state to, to Josh Hawley, who won against Claire McCaskill back in 2018. Uh, and, and, and you have candidates that even though they have establishment backgrounds Hartzler is a congresswoman Schmidt is a is a you know attorney general who, who gets good good reviews uh, in the state but the, these are folks that are trying to appeal to Trump they have Trump former Trump advisors on their payroll trying to get that endorsement and they have pandered to the to the most conservative elements within the Republican Party talk to me about Lucas Kunz does he have a real shot here like what are the numbers in Missouri tell us that you referenced I think that it's become more red recently it used to be a little bit more purple but of course we know Josh Hawley is the current senator there and Roy Blunt has been um, does Kunz really have a shot like if, if Greitens isn't isn't in it or something happens regarding him um, would he have a shot this has nothing to do with Kuntz or Scott Sifton, the other Democrat running in the primary. It has to do with Greitens if he's the nominee. I mean, Kuntz, 
you know, if this was any other state, I don't think he had. He's a military veteran. He served in the Iraq war. Uh, he's an attorney. So, I mean, he has a professional background. I think he's well to the left of where um, a lot of voters are in Missouri, and, and that would be a problem under against almost any other Republican. The, it's not about Kuntz. It's about Greitens, if Greitens ends up winning the nomination. Uh, the it. problem, if Greitens wins, is that he would be so unacceptable because of his personal uh, allega- these, these allegations of domestic abuse against his ex-wife, against his young child. That would be so beyond the pale. We saw in Alabama, by the way, Jessica, what happens when you nominate someone like that in Roy Moore just, just a few years ago, uh, even in Alabama, one of the most Republican states in the country, uh, a Democrat can win if you nominate someone who's unqualified or does has so much baggage. And that's what would happen in, in Missouri. It's not that Kuntz is this great candidate. It's that he's the alternative when you have a really bad candidate on the ballot. Josh, are we still waiting on an official redistricting map here? I, I know a House candidate, Paul Barry, he's running in the 2nd Congressional District, filed a lawsuit saying, where is the map? We kind of need one. Uh, the candidate filing deadline is March 29th. Uh, it sounds like that's still kind of up in the air. Yeah, the Missouri map is, uh, I mean, we're, it's one of the states that uh, I guess is last in the country. Though I think they, they um, it's really small potatoes when it comes down to it. It's a matter of whether Republicans want to essentially eliminate any 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 you know democratic representation in the state emmanuel i guess cory bush represents the st louis area emmanuel cleavers out in kansas city some conservative republicans want to get get rid of cleavers district and get an extra house seat out of the whole process uh we're stu- so it's a republican republican deadlock uh, it's not a matter of, of of democrats which don't have a whole lot of power in missouri it's a matter of whether republicans are more pragmatic or whether they want to really punish democrats as much as possible Josh, what what about any of the House races? We know there are two uh, seats held by Democrats. You just referenced Cory Bush, six held by Republicans. I'm not reading about any possible like flips here, but is there anything of interest uh, to you in this state as far as uh, congressional seats go? Yeah, I mean the only – Swing district. It's not even really a swing district anymore. Is that Ann Wagner district in suburban St. Louis, the second district? It got a little more friendly to her, and and in this environment that look is looking really good for Republicans. It's hard to see her having much trouble. Uh, you know, I, I I do think Cory Bush, maybe not this year, but you know, her she stuck her neck out on supporting defunding the police, on, on embracing some really radical positions within the left of her party. Uh, you know, that that could become problematic at some point in a primary in in that in that in that district. If she becomes a real um, embarrassing figure for for Democrats, that they have to respond to some of of her antics and her positions, they, there may be a primary that emerges not this year, but but in the future. Um, finally, Josh, does it does it matter that Josh Hawley has endorsed Congresswoman Vicki Hartzler for for this Senate seat? Yeah, it does matter. I, he, I mean, he I don't I don't think it's going to make a, a decisive difference in the race. But the problem in this race is not that you know Greitens is necessarily the favorite among most Republican voters. It's that you have so many candidates splitting up the vote, and um, and, and a lot of folks don't know these other Republicans. Hartzler and Schmidt are really I think the two most viable alternatives uh, but there's a divide within the the party and then you have other candidates like McCloskey and uh, and Billy Long the the congressman that are also in the picture so uh, Hartzler seems to be racking up the majority of like Washington endorsements the 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 move by Hawley, I think, was significant in that respect. But look, she 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 needs to get better known. She needs to spend money on her campaign to to raise her profile. Uh, and, and ultimately, it's the quality of her message that's going to put her over the top, not not the endorsements. 
And Josh, remind us, Republicans need how many seats to flip the House? Five seats, and uh, redistricting looked like it was going to benefit Republicans, and now looks a lot more of a wash. So, yeah, but the environment, the environment, the polling sure. looking so tough for Democrats. It looks like that's a pretty easy lift unless something really unprecedented happens before November. Josh Grasshauer, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Jessica. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, President Biden wants Congress to impose more sanctions on Russia, but a bill revoking a favorable trade status for the Kremlin has stalled in the Senate. We will follow that legislation as lawmakers promise to make Russian President Vladimir Putin pay for the war in Ukraine. The House panel investigating the January 6th Capitol riot last year is also moving to hold more members of the Trump administration in contempt. And public hearings from that committee are now expected in a few weeks. We will update the progress being made and what might come of the investigation. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For our team here at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, subscribe and listen to the Trey Gowdy Podcast. Former federal prosecutor and four-term U.S. congressman from South Carolina brings you a -a one-of-a-kind podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.